This is the Beyond Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. And this year we have been looking at the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament in what we've called a chronogeobiological flow. That is, we followed the book of Acts all the way through chronologically, and then we stopped off at the the places and the people and the topics that were addressed in the book of Acts. But then we come to the end, which is where we are now, the book of Revelation. And some of the territory was covered in the book of Acts, but this is written much later than all of the rest of the New Testament, really, except for the, the letters of John. And so it's, it's kind of written uh, later. And it also is a, is a look, though, at some of the places that were covered in the book of Acts in particular Ephesus and some of the surrounding cities. So the first couple of weeks, we've looked at a few of those churches, and here in the third of the four weeks we're spending on Revelation, we'll take a look at a couple of more churches, and then we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 6 through 8 with the seven seals that are sealing up the scroll. Let's first uh, take a look at these churches. We've, we've seen a few things about uh, some of them so far. And now we come up to a place called Thyatira. Is that how you pronounce it? Thyatira? Is that how you say it, Ben? Sure. Okay. I w- I, I've always pronounced it like I pronounce it, but you know, I don't, uh, just thought I'd ask. All right. So it says this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now again, all this imagery that's used to kind of be descriptive of God's power and judgment. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. That's, that feels, that's got to feel pretty good. Nevertheless, the next word, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Of course, now this goes reference all the way back in the Old Testament to the the Jezebel who was doing all kinds of horrible things hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. But again, it's imagery to talk about the kind of teachings going on. It, It says there, it continues, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating the food sacrificed to idols. Uh, so this is a, a theme that's been picked up in a couple of these churches that have sort of caved into the culture around them. They've caved into a culture where immorality and idolatry are prevalent in society, and people who are Christians say, eh, it's not that big a deal. Just, we, we might as well go for it. What do, I mean, we've seen this, we've talked about this time and time and time again, but here we are at the end of the Bible, and it's still a thing, and here we are now, and a couple thousand years later, and it's still a thing where immorality and idolatry are sort of accepted sometimes by the church, uh, by people in the church, by leaders in the church. Uh, why, why are those things in particular so enticing that, that we have a tendency to turn our backs upon what Scripture says and go for them? Why are immorality and idolatry like a, a carrot that we just want to keep chasing? Yeah, sometimes I think it's because we see the immorality or idolatry as a means to an end. And so you think about uh, t- human tendency, which, which Christians themselves display, 
you know, you think about somebody throwing in with a political candidate that might be just absolutely offensive to the character and, and nature of God, but we see that person as a means to our safety. Or you think about in this context where people, as we talked about, I think last last week, uh, potentially throwing in with like these trade guilds, um, and the trade guilds themselves all had a specific idol that uh, they would sacrifice uh, meat to, and that they would engage and have these feasts uh, in honor of, and for for people for these Christians not to engage. Uh, in those idolatrous practices meant economic suicide for them. It meant marginalization for them. And so, you know, you take away somebody's safety and security, physical safety and security, and sometimes that the, the fear that comes with that can lead us, can compel us uh, to throw in with things that are opposite of God, that are contrary uh, to God. And so rather than faithfulness, we're seeking self-protection. And we think, uh, again, uh, any means to an end of self-protection is a, is a good thing, or if nothing else is a serviceable thing. And it's led many a people to live uh, a life, sadly, um, opposite of what God would desire for us. You think those are the same temptations that draw people today, the Christians today, toward embracing or accepting or promoting immorality and idolatry? Yeah, yeah. And I think some of it too, it's like if, if a culture says something is good, right, and whole, and yet the, the Word of God confronts that thing as, as being the, the very opposite of what is really good, right, and whole, to stand in opposition uh, to a cultural ethic, you're going to receive blowback. And so the, the easier way, honestly, uh, the easier way um, is to avoid the blowback. And so I think a lot of times there's a tendency, there's a temptation to, to give ourselves to the, to, to the cultural idols uh, that exist um, within, any, within any cultural context um, as a means of, of self-preservation uh, really. Maybe we can get more about this as we look at Sardis. We, we just can't dive into all of these deeply because of, because of time constraints. But to the church in uh, Sardis, right, this is uh, down in chapter 3 now, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Okay, he's like, <laughs> wake up from your death. A lot of imagery. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. It seems to tie in with what you were just saying here that there's there's a, we're asleep at the switch a little bit in the in the church. This is not brand new. It's not like this is an American problem in 2023. I mean, it's 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 been around obviously since the Bible and and all all of time. But there's a at times the church can be asleep. 
going through the motions, believing generically what Scripture teaches us about who Jesus is and so forth. But there's this is a strong call to wake up, to be revived, so, so that we don't we're not found dead in our faith and 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 who we are. It's a it's a strong warning, I think, to all of us to make sure that we we are fully alive for Christ and for Christ alone. Anything you want to add to either of these two churches? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is. I mean, there's a general tendency toward complacency um, that we wrestle with, you know, where we, to your point, we just kind of go through the motions where we're not actively uh, living in accord with God's will, and we get to a place where we're not even recognizing it. And so that's where, again, as we, as we exist in our relationship with Christ, being ever mindful of God's desire for us to grow, to be growing, to be increasing in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so being self-aware enough, um, living a life of active prayer, living a life actively in the word, allowing the word to, uh, to shine a light on the darkness of our own hearts or even the darkness of our, of our church body, um, so that we are, uh, so that we're standing up underneath that light and praying for the Spirit to move and to change and to transform uh, us. That we're always uh, in a in a living into this disposition of being renewed uh, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That we would better serve as His ambassadors uh, in this world and as a church body. That we would better uh, live as an embassy of God's kingdom uh, in this world as well. That's a good word. All right, let's go ahead and, and switch gears. And we, we said we're going to cover a little bit about each of the churches and then spend some time in other parts of Revelation. So last, last time we looked at the scroll, and a scroll, and the question had seals on it, and the question was, who is worthy to unseal it? And the answer was only Christ, the, the slain Lamb of God is worthy to unseal it. And so now we get to Revelation chapter 6, where the, the Lamb, Jesus, does the opening of the seals. And there's a lot that goes on in this, this power-packed imagery that takes place there. We're in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. I watched, John says, I watched as the Lamb, Jesus, opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. I know that in apocalyptic literature that the color white is often symbolic of the notion of victory. When I, when I say things, by the way, it's not an equal sign, like this color equals this, this number equals this. I don't think that's the meaning of apocalyptic literature. It, it can mean it, there's symbolism, but this seems to fit here, this white horse, and there's going to be victory by, by the bad guys. I mean, they're, they're coming along, and there, there was in that moment, they were under severe persecution in, in the empire. I mean, we've already seen sometimes it was... Uh, some Jewish folks who lived in their community who were suppressing Christianity. And then by the time this was written, 
there had been waves of persecution under Nero and now Domitian, the, the Caesars, who had persecuted Christians severely, and they were used to seeing the rider on the white horse come through their town. They were used to seeing somebody saying, we're powerful, we're victorious, we are the empire, and they were used to seeing that. And it, it was a reminder that when we live our Christian life, not everything's going to work out as we want to. I'm sure these, these Christians who in these seven churches were reading this had hoped that the Roman Empire would sort of just go away and they could, they could live their Christianity freely and openly and with no persecution and no problems. But that was not to be, was it? No, no. And, uh, you know, whether it's the persecution they were facing or I think some of the, some of the imagery uh, that we'll see here is probably relating to famine and drought. And um, this world is full of its, of its brokenness. That's a byproduct of the fall of, of mankind. It's a byproduct of kind of the, the, the cosmic outflow of, of sin itself. And yeah, life isn't easy and there is nowhere in the scripture that reveals to us that the life of the follower of Christ is going to be an easy one. Instead, we live in light of the eternal inheritance that is promised to us. And because of that eternal inheritance, it doesn't compel a disposition of complacency or one of laziness, but it compels us to reveal that eternal kingdom here on earth as we seek to bear witness to Christ, calling others to receive Christ, to know Christ, but also uh, as we live out that kingdom ethic uh, through our love of neighbor, as we become a visible expression of what it is to, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's really, really good. Hey, why don't you take the next one? We'll just do every other one of these and see what we can figure out from these seals that get opened up. Um, verse 3. Verse 3, when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. Any thoughts, Pastor Mark, on that imagery? Well, you know, I mean, one of the things that, that I understand about some apocalyptic writing is that the color red um, is often symbolic of war itself. And so there was war around them and they would, they would be in war with one another. And it's, it plays out in this that uh, people kill each other and that was happening. People were encouraged to, to kill, um, and to persecute the Christians that, as I said, that persecution was ramping up big time. Um, and many people thought Domitian was, sort of the reincarnation of Nero, um, who had been bad enough. So there, were, there was a lot happening here, and it seems to be that this is a, a picture of great war that's going on around them that they had to feel trapped in. The third one is in verse 5, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. The color black, um, I believe sometimes in apocalyptic writing, 
stands for a lack of something. So here we're going to see a lack of food and a lack of money. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages. That sounds like a ripoff. And six pounds of barley for a day's wages. You got to work for a whole day to get a little bit of food. And, and do not damage the oil and the wine. I mean, it's like inflation and, and all kinds of things going on. People don't have enough food. There's hunger that seems to be taking place, which is an outgrowth of war, right? Because we often see that taking place when there's war. That Not only is there, is there death with war, but because supplies are cut off and sieges take place and all these other things, there is a shortage of money, shortage of food, and a shortage of all kinds of things that happen that that seems to be what's going on here. It's like this picture that is being painted that, yep, the world can be very hard. Yeah, whether it's, you know, famine that is a byproduct of war or even of, of drought itself, mm-hmm. you know, as we consider just the, the full scope of the, the suffering that this world does bring, um, these are all things that, again, are, are universal in some way, shape, or form that have been universal throughout time. And so uh, as we read uh, the imagery, as we, as we encounter the imagery, a lot of times some folks want to take the imagery itself and position it to a specific day or time prior to the, immediately prior to the return of Jesus. And I think one of the things that as we, as we read uh, as we read these words, being mindful of the actual state of the world itself. Yeah, good. That's a good point. I want you to take the next one there in verse we have, seven. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beast of the earth. And I think the the uh, the, the color tone of, of pale itself within apocalyptic literature, and you might have a different read on this, but you know we think about war, we think about famine, we think about drought, we think about all that uh, that that is the the outflow of these things, and disease and death follow. And so as we see the, the pale horse um, immediately, or at least for me, my thoughts turn to the disease, you know, the writer mentions, John mentions plagues um, that follow, uh, that are the outflow of those things. Yeah, there's, there's a, a death that's coming. And I, I don't get caught up in the, it's a fourth of the earth and what, you know, what number of people would that be in any given point in time? I think it's imagery largely and just saying there's there's rough times that are happening so these first four seals been they're opened up and i mean it's like it's nothing but bad news and hopefully it's going to get better except it's going to get worse because in verse nine it's the fifth seal when he opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of god and the testimony they had maintained. Now remember, this, this is being written to people who live in these seven churches that are in uh, the, 
a portion, Asia, the Asian portion of the Roman Empire, what we call Western Turkey. And they were under severe persecution. I mean, like we can't even comprehend. They were martyred for the faith. And the opening of this seal reveals them. The people who had been executed, had been crucified, who had been decapitated, who had been, you name it, uh, fed to wild dogs, I mean, burned. All these horrible things were being done at this point in time. And this fifth seal opening recognizes that. Uh, you know, we still have martyrs today in many parts of the world who are staying true to the faith. And because of that, they're losing their freedom, losing their livelihood, sometimes losing their lives, losing their loved ones. And this is a, this has got to be a word of hope for the people who had lost loved ones, faith persecution themselves, those who had watched their family and friends be put to death. It says in verse 10, they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. These martyrs um, would have life, and those who had been covered and soaked in their own blood would be given new white robes in, in God's heavenly kingdom. It's got to be a, a little bit of a word of hope for them, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, the, 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 the promise that's existent here and, and, and the promise of vindication um, that God will deal with injustice once and for all. Mm. And, and so, yeah, the, the hope that's present uh, here, uh, the promise that's given here, um, and God honoring those who have been faithful to him. Yeah, that's so true. All right, the sixth seal, brother. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth. As late figs dropped from a fig tree, when shaken by a strong wind, the sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For a great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Mm-hmm. And I'll let you uh, dive yeah, on into yeah, that one. I guess. You know, I mean, it's like all of creation is revolting with the stuff that's gone on here. And every person is hiding together in a cave. And it's pretty cool when you see like a slave and a king huddling together, this imagery in a cave, and just out of fear. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you think about how, how people often form... Uh, alliances with one another, but against somebody else. So in the United States, you know, we might have Republican versus Democrat and just can't fathom how you could vote for somebody other than that. 
But if our country were attacked by a foreign enemy, we we wouldn't care. Right. We wouldn't we wouldn't say, well, we're going to have a, a a group of Democrat soldiers and a group of Republican soldiers that are going to go serve together, and and far beyond that, like th- when when the world is revolting to all of this terrible stuff going on, everybody is in this same spot, fear. Yeah. And God's judgment is being revealed. I, I'm yeah. picturing in this. I, is that yep. what you're seeing? That's exactly the way I, I read it as well, is that it's their response to God's wrath, and it's a reminder to us of Christ being sovereign over all things, and a reminder to us that um, for those who reject Christ, God's judgment is is coming. And whether they are king or slave or wherever they stand uh, from a, a standpoint of social status, um, because of our sin, we are under the judgment of God's wrath. It It's a word of comfort for all of us. I mean, this book, I think, is timeless. And yes, it was dealing with the things that were happening in that moment in time a couple thousand years ago. But it is so relevant today and I think for all time that when the world seems to conspire uh, against what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, we can stand firm in the faith because God will redeem us. So then chapter 7 takes place, and we're not going to be able to have time to deal with that. But in chapter 8, the seventh seal is opened. So I'm going to take it to chapter 8, verse 1, and it says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, up until this point, it has been noisy. Heaven was noisy, as we saw last week, when, I mean, there were thousands upon ten thousands of angels, and people were bowing down, and harps were playing, and trumpets were blowing, and all these things were happening in heaven. And on earth, you have all this devastation and chaos that's going on. And when the seventh seal is open, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's an amazing thought that everything gets still. It kind of reminds me, you know, in the, the gentle whisper when God spoke in the Old Testament. And I, I believe like this is a picture for us to say something's going to happen. We're in chapter 8, verse 2, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. That goes on to a whole other imagery seven trumpets, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, here we go again, with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. There came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So it's like we have this calm before the storm. The prayers of of God's people rise up, and now the judgment of God's unleashed on the earth. It's It's quite a picture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Wow, it is it is something else. Well, there's man, there, there is just so much. It's beautiful in the book of Revelation, and we hope that you continue to read it. You know, next next week, Ben, is it 
this, this year-long Beyond Mission study is going to be concluded by us as we look at a little bit more of the book of Revelation and really get ourselves ready for next year, which we're going to dive into the Old Testament. We'll take the, the month of December away from it, uh, largely. Maybe a, a few s- small segments will come out there. But then in January, we'll jump in with the Old Testament. So stay with us for one more week, and we'll wrap up the book of Revelation next week. Until then, have a great week. Mm-hmm.